You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Unfortunately, it's going to be you know several years before this actually starts to to take impact take effect. But I think it is really important for organizations to start preparing for these reporting requirements and make sure that they're in a position to comply with the law when it gets passed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has an update on the Texas social media platform case. I've got the story of Canadian ISPs being ordered to block pirated streams of, wait for it, hockey games. And later in the show, my conversation with Greg Murphy. He's from a company called Order. We're discussing the Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's jump into some stories here. Uh, Why don't you kick things off for us? So just after we finished recording our previous episode... We got a Supreme Court decision of sorts on their so-called shadow docket. So this is when they issue a decision that hasn't been presented to them via oral argument. Um, They're just making a snap decision based on a petition from the parties. Mm. And this has to do with the uh, Texas social media platform statute that we've talked about several times on this podcast. So as a quick refresher— The statute prohibits viewpoint discrimination on social media platforms that meet a certain threshold. So they have to have 50 million users. They can't be your mom-and-pop social media companies. Mm -hmm. They have to be Mm -hmm. uh, the big guys. Once they are established as big social media platforms, they have certain reporting requirements related to uh, how they make decisions about banning certain users and this viewpoint discrimination provision, meaning— this is uh, – the origin of this is the uh, the folks on the Republican side making uh, the case that they believe that uh, their points of view are being censored by the big platforms. Exactly. It's in response um, to that uh, belief. Exactly. Okay. And so we've seen this pop up in a number of states. Another one where this was enacted was Florida, and there was a similar court case there. What happened in Texas is everybody sort of assumed that this law was going to get struck down immediately. Mm. Um, the – Platforms themselves have First Amendment rights, and if you were to take the enforcement provisions literally in the statute, the tech platforms would be forced to publish viewpoints that they do not want represented on their platform. Such as? Such as certain types of things that we would define as hate speech. Okay. Uh, If the state of Texas defined that as viewpoint discrimination and forced the social media platforms to put that content 
on uh, in public on the platforms, then that would violate the First Amendment uh, speech rights of these companies. And there has been previous case laws saying to an effect that uh, you can't compel somebody to to be a platform for speech, mm. a private organization to be a platform for, uh, uh, for speech for which they vehemently disagree with that speech. Yeah. And this to me seems like a textbook First Amendment case where we're protecting – a private organization from the government. From the government, exactly. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, if you recall, the beginning of the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. Right. Um, that's been incorporated to the states through the 14th Amendment. Okay. Uh, which means that it also means the Texas legislature shall make no law abridging the rights of freedom of speech. I see. Uh, but they sort of did. Yeah. The district court, so the trial court level uh, at the federal level weighed in and issued an injunction against the law. Unexpectedly, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which has a very conservative membership, vacated that injunction, meaning the law was put back in place. Right. This that, shocked, that was the one they did without comment, right? No they just, comment. They just um, did it. And it's been about six or seven weeks now, and we still don't have their justification for why they vacated that injunction. Huh. But they did. The law was put back in place. So the okay. company's petition to the U.S. Supreme Court— uh, to stay the ruling of the appeals court, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and uh, and join the law again from being enforced. Okay. So take the law once again out of commission. Right. We were looking for guidance from the Supreme Court because we had now seen conflicting case law in different jurisdictions. So we had talked about the Florida case where a court uh, came out one way and then there was the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which came out the other way. Uh, so we were looking for guidance from the Supreme Court, and we got it, hmm. sort of. So by a 5-4 vote, huh. the Supreme Court did uh, vacate that stay and uh, issued an injunction against the enforcement of that law. So the law is currently not in place, once again, in the state uh, of Texas, pending further legal proceedings. Okay. The majority was silent. They gave no reasoning for their decision. They don't have to. Uh, hmm. It goes back down to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, who will now have to hear the district court case on the merits. So they're going to have to consider, through oral arguments, the competing interests of both sides. The five justices in the majority, uh, you have two, two of the liberal justices, so Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor, and then three of the more conservative justices – Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett. Hmm. Then we have the dissenters. Uh, the first three dissenters did not surprise me at all. This was a joint dissent, about a six-page opinion written by Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. Okay. And they weighed in on the merits, basically saying that they thought the state of Texas had a good chance of succeeding in this case uh, if the case were heard in front of oral arguments. Hmm. Their justification is that In this day and age, uh, it's unclear whether social media companies should be seen as common carriers, in which case governments, whether that be the federal government or state governments, would have some role in regulating what these social media companies do. If these social media companies have an extremely large market share to the extent that there aren't viable alternatives, then the government, based on past case law, can can. I guess, offer a a level of control over these companies vis-a-vis constitutional rights Hmm. uh, as if they were common carriers like Amtrak or a utility company that had a large market share in a local market, for example. Like a phone company also. Exactly. Common carrier example, yeah. So you have three justices here 
pretty much endorsing that view. Now, they didn't say it explicitly. What they were saying was it's very plausible that that view could prevail. We might as well keep this law in place while there are further proceedings. The Court of Appeals in the Fifth Circuit can go through the full process of hearing the two parties, coming to a decision. If that decision is appealed to us, we can go through our full process. Hmm. But at least it's plausible and, in fact, somewhat likely that uh, the First Amendment rights of these companies have not been violated as uh, as a result of this Texas law. Okay. So that's where those were the three conservative dissenters. The fourth dissenter, which was a bit of a shock, was Justice Kagan, who was considered a more liberal justice. She was appointed by President Obama. She, much to my frustration, the frustration of many observers, did not say why she was dissenting. Hmm. Uh, she did not have to say why she was dissenting. Uh, this is a injunction, so it's not a full opinion. Um, she certainly was well within her rights uh, to not declare why she was dissenting. She has expressed disdain in the past for major policy decisions being made through the shadow docket, so that could have been a justification for her dissenting here, but we just don't know. Hmm. Uh, And the reason that's somewhat worrisome to observers, the tech companies, and frankly people who want to protect the First Amendment rights of these platforms to, to moderate content as they see fit, is you are one justice away now, potentially, um, from upholding a pretty radical law like the one that Texas uh, proposed and enacted. Hmm. Uh, We have three justices who seem to be amenable to the law on the merits, and we have one other justice that, for whatever reason, didn't want to issue an injunction against the law being enforced. Hmm. Uh, So that's at least a hint that in the future— these companies really might be subject to regulation based on how they moderate content, uh, and there really might be a viable case down the line about so-called political bias of big tech platforms where a state can kep- uh, can step in and issue sanctions to Twitter or Meta or whatever for what they see as viewpoint discrimination. Um, now, as we've talked about, that's going to be very difficult to enforce Right. Uh, we have no idea how that would work in practice, if it could work in practice. What we saw from the Supreme Court case is that we should probably start to at least consider those questions, frankly. Hmm. Where does this go next? So it goes back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, they are going to hear the case on the merits and presumably issue a holding on the merits. So they're going to actually have to, unlike their their previous ruling— go through their reasoning, a constitutional analysis of why the Texas law, in their view, is or is not constitutional. Hmm. Uh, That could potentially be a very long process. Depending on the outcome of that case, if the Fifth Circuit, as I would expect, sides with the state of Texas, then the big uh, tech platforms will petition the Supreme Court to issue a writ of certiorari and hear the case in uh, in one of their next terms, whether that's the 2023 term, which starts in October, or the 2024 term, uh, which starts the next October. And we'll have at least one new member of the court since um, Justice-to-be Katanji Brown-Jackson will have joined at that point. Uh, So all this means for now is that the the law is not in effect while the proceedings continue. Um, Based on what we know about the Fifth Circuit, uh, it seems as if there's at least a strong chance that um, they would put the law back into place. They would mm-hmm. vacate the initial injunction once again right. of uh, the district court. And then 
Who knows what would happen if there were a full argument at the Supreme Court? Perhaps the three dissenting conservative justices would be able to, through the process of briefs uh, from outside observers or constitutional scholars, maybe persuaded to consider big tech platforms as common carriers. And that would just have vast, wide-reaching implications across a bunch of different uh, spheres. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, you know, are, are you and other observers surprised that the Supreme Court ruling was as close as it was? Yes. Now, again, I have no idea what Justice Kagan was thinking. Mm-hmm. I want to just go up there and be like, please, just give me one sentence. <laughs> you can use cryptography, you know, maybe only write it so that I can understand it. Is she not returning your phone calls, Ben? Yeah, or put it in secret code, maybe make an acronym okay. right. that gives me some hint as to uh-huh. what she's thinking. I mean, my guess is it's a procedural objection and that she is not a, actually a fourth vote for this common carrier view, hmm. uh, but I don't know. So it certainly did surprise me that it was a 5-4 decision. Um, Justice Thomas had previously indicated an interest in regulating big tech platforms as common carriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justice Alito usually sees eye to eye with Justice Thomas on this. Justice Alito has spoken contemporaneously in many documents about his disdain for what he sees as big tech political bias. Um, mm-hmm. He's just a conservative-oriented individual, and I, I'm not surprised if that's his viewpoint. Yeah. not surprised to see it from Justice Gorsuch uh, as well. Um, mm. I think he sees eye-to-eye on these issues, uh, just like Justice Thomas and, and Justice Alito. So Kagan was the surprise for me. Yeah. Um, I have no idea what the broader implications of that might be. But if for some reason she did agree with Justice Thomas on the merits, then you'd only need to pull off one more justice. Um, and certainly, I think Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, given their political disposition, would at least potentially be amenable to, to that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something we really have to be watchful for. Uh, and I think as we mentioned previous times, this is not just going to happen in Texas and Florida. There are a lot of states with Republican uh, state legislatures who strongly dislike big tech platforms and think that they're, these, these platforms are biased against conservatives. Uh, and we're going to see these types of laws enacted in a number of different states. Uh, and I think uh, until we get some sort of definitive resolution on this, which we don't have at this point, um, that's that's going to be an open question. Yeah, boy, that's it's fast. It's going to be fascinating to see this one play out because it's. I mean, it's like flipping the table upside down. If you make if you make them common carriers. That's a big change. <laughs> it's an enormous change. And it's not just in this area of the law. I mean, there are right. tons of regulations governments can issue on common carriers, even for things like common law torts huh. um, that would make life a living H-E double hockey sticks <laughs> uh, to, to give you a, uh, a vague preview of our next story. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so the tech platforms would – freak out, basically, yeah. uh, if they were put under the microscope like Interesting. that. So they're going to hire the best appellate attorneys in the country <laughs> to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right, right. All right. Well, we'll have a link uh, to that story in our show notes. Uh, my story this week, uh, actually, uh, I originally came to me over Twitter. There's uh, a gentleman uh, named Andy Kaplan-Mirth, who is a telecom lawyer uh, in Ottawa, Canada, uh, he brought this story to my attention. 
Uh, and then I found uh, a write-up about what's going on here on the website Torrent Freak. Uh, the, the title of the article is NHL Broadcasters Win Canada's First Dynamic Pirate IPTV Blocking Order. Um, basically, what's going on here is that uh, the rights holders to hockey games in Canada, the broadcasters who have you know, spent a lot of money for those rights— um, have convinced uh, the Canadian Supreme Court, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Ben, the Canadian Supreme Court, uh, that Canadian ISPs have to do dynamic blocking of particular IP addresses uh, while hockey games are being broadcast in order to block pirated streams of those hockey games. That's right. Now, first, I will say I'm thrilled to be talking about the NHL on this podcast. Never thought I'd have the opportunity. I'm a big hockey fan myself. I'm wondering if uh, I can get your prediction on the Tampa Bay Lightning versus the Colorado Avalanche in the Uh Stanley Cup Finals. Okay. Um, Uh, Yeah. Yeah, throw a dart at the wall. I think the best uh, team will win, Ben. There you go. Yeah. I like that prediction. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you can understand the story without understanding how important hockey is in Canada. Right. Uh, I have some Canadian ancestry, and it is life or death there. <laughs> think about this like the rights to broadcasting the Super Bowl. Uh-huh. Um, hockey gets such incredible ratings in Canada that they've measured the impact on sewage systems during major hockey games. Mm. And you'll see that during the first and second intermission of a hockey game, a lot of people are flushing their toilets. Yeah. Uh, and it has right. a measurable impact. Okay. Because people are sitting through uh, the actual hockey action. Yeah. So the rights are extremely valuable there. If people are able through piracy to watch these games or to stream these games illegally on platforms, mm-hmm. that's an enormous portion of the revenue of some of these big media companies. So the big media companies in Canada, Rogers, TSN, uh, ITV, I believe, is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, they pay an arm and a leg for these rights. Yeah. And the government uh, is basically protecting their intellectual property, uh, their ability to have exclusive broadcasting rights for these mega events by having this dynamic uh, way of shutting down online private uh, piracy. Right. So I, I just I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically here, but I think – uh, this description would hold up. So say, for example, uh, the Stanley Cup were being broadcast in the U.S., uh, where hockey is popular, but certainly not as popular as it is in Canada. Someone living in Canada, rather than paying for their local stream, could latch on to a U.S. stream mm-hmm. where perhaps it's streaming for free because right. it's not as in demand, and then they avoid having to pay for it locally. Yeah, some people, I'm not going to name them, might use VPNs uh, to (laughs) illegally stream sporting events. Uh I'm not sure how street legal that is, uh, but you can certainly, through a VPN, place yourself in a U.S. market, Mm -hmm. buy an ESPN Plus subscription uh, if you want to spend a minimal amount of money and can get that broadcast for free without having to pay the exorbitant uh, fees for a full cable package in Canada, which I'm sure many Canadians only get that cable package to make sure that they can watch the Stanley Cup uh, or the Stanley Cup playoffs, rather. Yeah. So help me understand here. Uh, This article points out that the federal court grants an interlocutory injunction. What does that mean? 
It means lawyer boy. Uh, so an interlocutory appeal means it is an uh, interim, non-final decision where they so they are granting some type of injunction as they are here yeah. against the actions of the defendants who are unnamed individuals uh, who have pirated hockey games. I see. Without completed proceedings uh, at at the court. So uh, it's an appeal without having gone through it, – it's it's a judicial decision without having gone through the full and complete process that one normally goes through to get a decision at the Canadian Supreme Court. Now, I am not an expert on the Canadian Supreme Court. Oh, come on, Ben. I know. I know it's a little <laughs> bit less powerful uh, than our Supreme Court. Okay. I don't know if they um, have the same level of judicial review powers uh, that we do. I think their legislature, the Canadian Parliament is uh, – is more powerful than our Congress, I for see. example. Yeah. Um, but there's a reason they're stepping in now, which is because we are in crunch time in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and there is a lot of money to be made and lost over the next several weeks mm. uh, as these playoffs continue. I mean, that is prime rating season. Right. The companies don't want to lose that revenue uh, because they're not going to have an opportunity to gain that revenue again. Granted, the contracts have been signed. Yeah. Uh, but they're not going to have the same viewership uh, until this time next year. So hmm. the interlocutory appeal is designed to expedite that process so that these companies can get some level of relief uh, during this pretty valuable time period. Right. So they've they've got some oversight here, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, this ruling or this this uh, order uh, expires after the Stanley Cup ends. Um, they're requiring some uh, third party auditing to see if it actually works or not. Um, some of the ISP oh the ISPs have to get paid for their efforts in doing this. Right, and it's no small effort on the part of the ISPs. I mean, yeah. it takes a lot of compliance work on their part. Let's look at the big picture here, though. There are some civil liberties folks who are concerned that, as always, that this could be a slippery slope. How so? Well, just that the um, the broadcasters aren't going to stop here. That if they ask for this, they're going to ask for this for, for uh, obviously, all hockey games. Right. Um, but then what else? And what else gets blocked? And what gets caught up in the blocks? And... Uh, you know, they're saying we need to be mindful that the court just doesn't give the broadcasters a blank check for what they want to have for what on the internet, right? They're not 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 their domain to be blocked. Right. I would say I'm usually amenable to those types of slippery slope arguments, but right. knowing what I know about hockey in Canada, <laughs> this is the slippery slope. <laughs> If you are enforcing a ruling during the Stanley Cup Finals, that is as far as you are going to go. Oh, ben. nothing else matters. I think you're. I think you're being clouded by your love for hockey, Ben. I think I am, but I. I also believe that. I mean, how much further can you go if you are a uh, Canadian broadcasting company? Right. I mean. Curtailing people's ability to watch curling or sled dog racing does not have the same effect. Yeah. <laughs> this is serious business. Covering the Canadian elections or, you know, the provincial news in Ontario, I don't think carries the same cachet in Canada as a single game in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Okay. And I'm, I, I think I'm not just saying that as a hockey fan. I think I'm saying that 
as somebody who understands the basics about Canadian culture. Yeah. Um, so I, I am sympathetic to the slippery slope argument, but I think – I don't think that's really applicable here. I mean I think the fact that they were willing to do this for the Stanley Cup mm-hmm. – um, means that they take the anti-piracy rights of these broadcasters very seriously. Yeah. Um, I think that is the best indication that you're going to get. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like for us to discuss on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Greg Murphy. He's from a company called Order. And our conversation centers on the uh, Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act. Here's my conversation with Greg Murphy. Sure. I think this act was pulling actually from three other pieces of legislation. And what it's really designed to do is to ensure that entities and and organizations in critical infrastructure segments um, have a responsibility to report cyber incidents very promptly within 72 hours after an incident occurs, or in the the case of ransomware, uh, where someone's paying a, a ransom to bad actors, to report that within 24 hours of uh, making that payment. And so the, the intent here is to ensure that information is being shared and disseminated widely so that other organizations and other entities get the, the benefits of understanding what is happening, what uh, how organizations have been responding, and can take steps to defend themselves. So the whole goal is to enable a more coordinated, faster response and ensure that people have visibility to you know, the threat landscape as quickly as possible. Well, this has passed the Senate and has uh, yet to make its way through the House. How are we looking in terms of um, its prospects there? 
Well, you know, I think it looks very good. I think, you know, when you looked at the the Senate, it passed unanimously. And in this day and age, that I can't think of too many things that make it through the, the Senate with unanimous agreement. So I think right. that, especially in uh, response to recent events in Ukraine and in world events and the concerns about uh, cyber threats uh, to national security, I think there is just a, a heightened focus on this where, you know, a few months ago or years ago, this may not have been possible, but I you know, think it's uh, looking very positive and expect that it would actually make it through the House as well. Can you share your insights on, on this sort of disclosure legislation? Where do you come down on this? Is this, is this a good thing? I think overall, it's a, a very good thing. Uh, when when a cyber incident occurs, the main thing that we, we want to do as an industry is ensure that everyone gets as much information as quickly as possible so that other organizations can take steps to defend themselves. Because the, the reality of the, the world we live in is that the bad actors, the, you know, the criminals um, that are propagating this malware, they rarely go out and target just one you know, organization. They're going after multiple organizations, you know, very often they're deploying malware and it's, it's sitting dormant you know, on network for months or even years before it's, it's activated. So the assumption is that whenever one organization is you know, subject to attack, there are probably you know, lots of others that are in the, the sites of these attackers and getting information in people's hands as, as fast as possible so they can take proactive steps to protect themselves and to protect their, their businesses, to protect consumers, to protect patients in healthcare. Uh, that's all you know, very beneficial. So I think this is a, a big step forward. I think it's uh, been a long time coming. Unfortunately, it's going to be you know, several years before this actually starts to, to take impact, take effect. But I think it is really important for organizations to start preparing for these reporting requirements and make sure that they're in a position to comply with the law when it gets passed. What about the actual requirements themselves? You know, we're we're talking about 72 hours here for reporting cyber attacks and 24 hours for ransomware. Um, I, I've heard some folks uh, say that perhaps that puts an undue burden on the organizations. What's your what are your thoughts there? You know, I, I think it really comes down to in this act. You know, it's put uh, CISA, the the agency, you know, in charge of defining some of the the specific uh, regulations about what exactly needs to be disclosed and when. But I think you're you're right. I think it has to be. The, the regulation has to balance the need for information to be shared quickly with the, the reality that when you're you know, 70 towers into a, a cyber attack and you're the, the CISO of the organization, you're probably in absolute firefighting mode. You don't always have perfect or complete information. Um, and so I think the, the regulations need to reflect that and understand that, that information may be partial, that information may change over, over time and need to be updated and I think they, they also need to make sure that they, as they think about these regulations, they recognize the differences between types of organizations and the resources that they have available to them. You know, in healthcare, which is one of the, the critical infrastructure categories, you've got everything from small community hospitals that may have one or two people in the, the IT organization and it's entirely and then you've got you know very large multi-billion-dollar organizations with immense resources available, and so need that the regulations need to make sure that uh, these organizations can realistically provide that information, and also make sure that 
uh, they have enough protection that they're not you know, feeling like they are being put at significant legal or business exposure by you know, making these these disclosures. So that the goal here is information sharing and speed and not punitive to, to go after and, and punish you know, organizations that are victims of these attacks. What do you suppose this is going to mean for those various sized organizations in terms of you know, the, the adjustments they're going to have to make to be able to comply? Well, you know, I think one of the things that are really important is that organizations start to prepare, if they haven't already done that, to make sure they have good monitoring tools in place so that they know what devices are connected to their network and, and what those devices are doing. And so when malware comes into their environment, that they can identify where it came from and how it may have spread and uh, what protocols it used on the, the network. There are, there are tools uh, like ones, frankly, that, that we develop on the, the market that enable them to, to do that. And it's important that they have those types of systems in place because certainly when you're in the midst of an attack, that's not the time that you're going to be able to go and put in new systems and, and processes. So when you're firefighting, you don't want to be having to you know, spend your time trying to gather data and figure out you know, what you're going to need to pull together in order to meet the reporting requirements. You want to have those systems and tools already in place um, so that you have them at your fingertips and frankly can use them to help you respond more uh, quickly and you know in a in a more effective manner to any attacks that occur so i think this is you know the good news here is that the CISOs you know have been thinking about this for quite a while and this is really i think an instigator for them and for their organizations to make sure that they have the appropriate infrastructure in place to enable them to to comply with this regulation you know this act is all about um, disclosure what about what comes next do you envision us getting to a point where we're actually doing information sharing? Uh, yeah, that's the, to me, the, the critical part. It's the whole goal of this has to be information sharing. I mean, just disclosing the, the information you know, may help the, the government in compiling statistics, but the goal of having the disclosures happen so quickly is presumably so that that information can be shared very quickly with others. You know, and you see that you know, all the time is that we have bad actors and criminal gangs that are attacking multiple organizations. And so having that visibility you know, from what's happening in another organization and getting information about how the what are the indicators of compromise are, how the, the malware was spread, what was done to defend against it, that's incredibly valuable information. So if there is no sharing then there's no point to this legislation, really. Hmm. So what's your advice you know, for organizations who see this coming along and want to be prepared for when it actually goes into effect? Um, what sort of steps should they be taking now? You know, I think the the first is make sure you know that you have basic hygiene in place. If you think about you know, yourself as an organization, you need to know what devices you know are connected to your network. You know what those devices are, how they behave. You know have the ability to detect a, a detect anomalous behavior very quickly. For example, if you see a a video surveillance camera on your network that is suddenly talking to your financial systems in a way that no video surveillance camera has ever done before, you want to be able to know about that, flag it, you know, and take action immediately. 
those are the those types of systems having that in place will enable you to quickly provide the type of information that the the government's going to be looking for you know after these responses to be able to or after these incidents and be able to share that information very effectively with with other organizations so i would really look to putting that basic hygiene in place make sure you understand exactly what's connected to your network what those devices do and have anomaly detection capabilities in place Ben, what do you think? Wow, Congress is actually doing something. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm as shocked as, as you and Mr. Murphy uh, yeah. were on in, in your interview. Uh, I think the prospects, as he said, are quite good for this legislation. Again, it's largely a legislation geared around reporting. Mm. Um, that's usually the first step and not the last step. A lot of it is going to depend on how it's enforced by CISA. Yeah. Uh, but it has passed the Senate. That's usually the hardest hurdle right. um, because there are all these procedural things you can do in, in the Senate to come up the works. And the fact that you had unanimous support, I think, is a very positive sign. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have happened several years ago. Um, I think it's happening because we've all now been impacted by cyber attacks, ransomware attacks that have had these kinetic effects where it's not just affecting people in the industry. It's affecting the everyday Americans who call their members of Congress. Right. Um, I think the prospects are good in the in the House, uh, so I think there's a strong chance that this could be enacted into law. Um, and it's just fascinating to hear about what the impetus was for this law, um, how the federal government uh, was able to put something together to at least begin to try to respond to this problem. Yeah. And it's really about having uh, situational awareness on what the threats are. Right. Um, reporting itself isn't necessarily going to change anything overnight, uh, but it's about giving other entities who have not yet been subject to these attacks the awareness of the threat landscape. Uh, and I think without these types of reporting requirements, a lot of private and public organizations are largely in the dark. Um, so I think this holds a lot of promise. All right. Well, our thanks to Greg Murphy for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. And that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.